This episode of the Columbia Technology Ventures podcast features Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director at CTV, Jeffrey Sears, Chief Patent Counsel for Columbia University, and a panel of technology commercialization and intellectual property experts discussing the effect of new patent laws on the licensing landscape and offering patent strategies and advice for different types of startups. For more videos, podcasts, or to learn more about Columbia Technology Ventures, please visit www.techventures.columbia.edu. I'll kick things off by touching on a topic that a few of you raised but wasn't necessarily explained. So, Ian, I think you used the phrase efficient infringement. Could we just, maybe you get us started. What do you mean when you say efficient infringement? Yeah, for me, it goes... um, we were just talking about the risk of injunction, which is something we had a, a stronger risk of injunction, which means basically at the ITC, you can stop a product from coming in uh, to the US. Um, that risk is much lower today than it was 10, 15 years ago um, because of some court cases. And um, as a result, the real risk of infringement right, is just a payment of damages. And we've got willful infringement, which um, if you can be proved to having uh, knowledge of a patent, uh, and that you were infringing that patent and still moving forward to infringe it. Um, you can have trouble damages, so your, your damages um, can be bumped up. Um, but really, it's damages, right? So you're worried about how much would I have to pay. Uh, the ability to get to that point, to know how much you have to pay in damages, is on average between 2.5 and $5 million, such as the, um, the AIPLA, uh, American Intellectual Property Law Association. Um, so it's an expensive endeavor to get there. Um, so you have to add that in as a fixed cost just to get there. Um, me, I'm going to jump in for a minute. because. Sure. When, if I go back 20 years ago when I was originally doing licensing, the guys I'd be negotiating with would have meaningful risk that we would go to court. We didn't go to court all the time. It used to be that court was the exception, not the rule. Now it's become more the rule. But they'd have meaningful risk that we'd go to court because if we went to court and we won, we could stop them from practicing. So remember, patent's a property right. It's in the Constitution. The, the, it used to be a matter of course that if you won your court case, you get the, op- you get the opportunity to, to get an injunction to stop them from doing what they're doing. That's very, very powerful in a negotiation. Um, and as Ian referred to, uh, treble damages. If you were a willful infringer, the damages that the jury would grant you would be up to trebled by the court. So, so I could talk to somebody across the table and say, look, if I was in your shoes, I'd be afraid that I'm going to sue you. So let's work a deal, because if I sue you, we're going to get an injunction, and we're going to get trouble damages. So you, so you have these risks. I mean, it's, it's a psychological game. And often when I'm negotiating, I'm envisioning the board of directors on the other side. And what, um, what am I arming my opponent to tell his chain of command and his board as to why we need to do this deal? Well, what, what Ian referred to is the court cases have watered that down significantly over the last 10 years, to the point where to get an injunction is almost impossible. You can go to the ITC and get an exclusion order, which is injunction-like, but it's a lot more challenging. I'm sure Gerard can add a little bit, a little bit to that. The tribal damages is also, they're, they're not as often going to occur. There, there are some recent cases that, that have maybe brought it back a bit. But the playing field has been tilted so much that I'm generally a licensor. But were I a licensee, were I somebody who's making a bunch of product using a bunch of patents, it's it's almost impossible for me to articulate an argument to my board of directors that says we should pay these guys short of them suing us and winning. Whereas in the old days, I, there was a risk equation that I could, I could go through in my mind that if we get sued and lose, we're gonna, it's going to be much more cataclysmic 
than if we just do the deal today. Now, if we get sued and lose, it's gonna be almost exactly as the deal we could do today, so why the hell shouldn't we just wait and make them go through this gauntlet? And that's what's provoked this infringement, efficient infringement mindset, which makes a bunch of sense until it gets rebalanced. If you think, yeah, right, sorry, John. Do you think about what I, what I mentioned on the list? It was the probabilities, because it's a probabilistic right. Um, anytime you get proposed to take a license, you have a list of probabilities. How, um, how probabilistic or how, how likely is it that this person would actually sue me? Do they have the money to get there? Um, how likely is it that this patent is actually valid? How likely is it that we actually infringe? Uh, and on down. So you know, how, even down to how likely is it we'll go to that court versus this one. Um, so if it's just a number, if we don't have the injunctive risk, if it's just a number, and the injunctive risk is what matters because if you can't sell the product anymore, that's big. But if it's just a number that we have to pay, then really smart people can build you know, a model that says, all right, well, based on these probabilities, um, my probability of paying X is this. Um, and right now, um, that it's uh, the rational decision because of X is just to wait, like, like John but, said. But 20 years ago, it was, referred, it was referred to at the negotiating table as going nuclear. If you sue me, you went nuclear and you know, I thought we had a good relationship, why the hell did you do that? Now, same exact parties, right. we'll, right. we'll pre present patents to them and they say, unless you sue me, I can't get the attention of the people in my chain of command. You have to sue me as table stakes to be a tier one licensor with us because so many other people have sued and the, the market has just shifted. So it's, it's a complete different uh, situation, but it's all a product of the fact that if you're an infringer, why not continue to infringe? There's really no risk that you're taking. I'll give you, I'll give you Finjan's view. So we, we're in the, in the middle and sit on both sides of this historical how it was and then how it is today. So let me give you an example. We had a case uh, 10 years ago, <clears throat> and our cases are uh, costing on a, maybe on an average basis somewhere between seven and maybe as much as eight and a half million dollars. And so in a case that we had in 2006, by the time it was done in 2009, we sought an injunction and we got it. And the original jury award was, I don't know, nine million. It went through the federal circuit, got to almost 40 million. And when we got the injunction, that case resolved itself for almost a multiple of what the federal circuit's order came back. So that's the power of what the injunction has, right? Because you're no longer talking about just getting a license to the patents in the lawsuit. You're not talking about just a royalty on some portion of net sales or net profit. You're talking about, hey, it's great that you a minute ago were going to pay a dollar per TV set, but tomorrow you can't tell TV sets at all, huh. right? I mean, that's the power of what we're talking about. So fast forward to a case that we had just last year. So again, same average cost between seven and you know, maybe a little more than eight and a half million dollars for the case. And we heard from the court when the jury came back, everyone wanted to know if Finjan was gonna win this case. And, and the consensus was that we were gonna win the case. But when they heard the damages number, everybody just let out kind of a sigh and said, wow, it's gonna make it impossible for us to help you, the plaintiff who just won this infringement case to get paid. And that dollar amount was 40 million bucks. So that was, that was the award, the damages award. So we sought a preliminary injunction. And just a week ago, basically, actually a, sort of illuminating for the court what these efficient infringement arguments were, everything from the precipitous decline in share price based on this company not paying, uh, it's actually caused more cost to us. Mm -hmm. We have a second separate case against this company. We're now seeking, uh, uh, going through the German courts to actually pursue this company into additional markets where we can get the injunction. So our cost basis, is now going to go triple. And I already have an adjudicated decision. But at this point where you, know, you would traditionally think about applying leverage, right? All these things look to be like they're leverage. And that at some point you'd 
reach this logical point where you'd say, okay, it's enough. It actually works the other way. Let's say that 40 turns into 80, turns into 100, turns into 200. Then it actually supports this cost of capital decision that's going on where you say, and the best example I can give you as to how this makes sense is somebody related it to what a white collar crime defense attorney does. Someone sits down and says, well, you may or may not be guilty. You're going to pay me $25 million, and it's going to take 10 years. And the, the guy sitting in the chair is saying, wow, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of time. Why, how does it work like that? And the answer is, because all I have to do is wait for a technicality, and then I don't, you're off the hook, right? I get my fees, and you don't go to jail. And in the, in the context of patent law, I may get $200 million or $300 million against a company but I'm going to have to continue to pay and invest, and it's going to be more efficient for them to not pay and force me to invest. And that's the problem. I, th I think it's interesting to think a little about uh, wh why are we in this place? And, and this is a little bit of a pitch that I give to juries when I represent plaintiffs in, in infringement cases. Intellectual property uh, is uh, uh, an intangible asset, right? We all know that. It's not real. You can't hold it. It's purely a creature of law. Its value is based on law. You can't hold it. And so as I say to juries, if you're making a product and you don't pay your electrical bill, what does the electrical company do? It shuts off your electricity. If you own intellectual property and somebody's using your intellectual property to make their product, you can't shut it off. You've published it. They can use it. There's nothing you can do other than to go to you nice folks sitting on the jury and say, help me prevent them from stealing my property. I can't turn off the switch like, like the electrical company can, and then they'll pay their bill. So I've got to come to you. So since, since intellectual property is an intangible asset, it's purely a creature of law. And in the decades that I've been doing this, you can see the pendulum swing for a whole wide variety of reasons between really fierce enforcement of intellectual property to a place that we got to, I think probably I would pin it to about a year or so ago, when we were really at a place where courts, Congress, the literature, the popular newspapers, and you had the Supreme Court and the Federal Circuit working together to lower damages, to make it easier to invalidate patents, to make it more expensive to litigate patents. And in that period of time, a couple of years ago, you were really at a point where I think you know, Ian's IPXI was a wonderful idea. But I think it came at the wrong time. It came at a time when people said, you know what? Sue me because, one, you won't do it. And even if you do, I'll win. And even if I don't win and I lose, I'm still going to end up ahead of the game because the damage awards and all the other problems uh, are so low. And you're going to have to wait 10 years until you see a paycheck from me. So we're at a place where, because this is intangible property that you can't hold on to, it's just a creature of law, where law had so denigrated the value of it that you got to this uh, efficient infringement stuff. But I think we're starting to climb our way out of it. Recently, you see courts, in, in one of the cases that I had in the Supreme Court, make it a little bit easier to get enhanced damages for willful infringement. You see courts protecting inventions a little bit more. You see courts expanding the basis on which you can get damages. So in the history of intellectual property and the history of intangible assets, I think we're starting to climb out of this hole that we dug ourselves into. And at least I, for one, think it's very important and very significant to protect good intellectual property. And, and Ian referred earlier to the real estate example, which is way overplayed. <laughs> in, in the context of intellectual property, where people say, well, you can trade houses, and why can't you trade, trade patents? But imagine if sell, buying and selling a house was subject to 
the quantity of dynamics that are involved in the intellectual property market. It, it, I mean, as uh, Gerard said, it, the pendulum's always swinging. The law is always changing. The environment we're operating in is, is so much more dynamic than here's a, here's a house and it sold for $100,000 10 years ago and now it's going to be worth 150 or 200. There's, there's so, so much bedrock associated with most assets. This one, we're subject to the winds of the court in some ways. And, and to me, it, it, that, that three-level chess kind of Spock thing that goes on is what's attractive to me about this market is that, it, it, you know, I think about people who work in other industries and I think how boring is it to sell razor blades that, you know, <laughs> and your whole mission is to guess how many razor blades they're going to buy this quarter versus last quarter based on whatever. You know, this is, a, this is really, really challenging, cool stuff. And, you, and, and I, I do think we all kind of agree that we've hit, hit the bottom, and that's what makes it really exciting is that where do we go from here? We, we've, we've had some little bit of debate during the break about what the new administration is going to do, right. whatever. And, uh, even before the election, I was on record that regardless of who wins, it's going to be better because there, there's nobody could be more aligned with the, the large Silicon Valley-based incumbents than the Obama administration has been. And that's, <coughs> been, I think, the big driver behind a lot of the weakening of patents is you've got companies out there that have, maybe because of patents, they've, they've made their mark, they're out there, they're, do, they're making a really big buck, and they don't want to be, they're the Goliaths, and they don't want any Davids coming after them anymore. They, they, they like the, the protection. Patents level the playing field. They like the playing field to be as less leveled as possible. So whether it was Hillary and she's more you know, Wall Street-centric, I think that would have been good. Now with the, you know, I, I was, as I was coming up on the subway today, I was thinking that I was going to share that I think it's, it's an exciting time to be where we are, but not exciting like you're going to Disney World and you know you're going to have a really fun time. It's more exciting like my team's in the World Series or the Super Bowl. I don't know how it's going to end, but it's exciting <laughs> because my team's there. And it's like that, that's almost the way I look at it now is it's exciting to see, but we don't know how, that, how it exactly plays out. But I'm confident wherever it is, it's going to be better than we've been. The, uh, you mentioned the David versus Goliath scenario. The efficient infringement problem, it affects all patent owners, especially those who make money by licensing their patents. But it could be hard for those of us who are in the audience to have much sympathy for well-funded, sophisticated companies. Hey, you've got a lot of cash. We're not really going to feel too bad for you. It's an, it's an especially acute problem for David, the startup who's got some great inventions, and they're just being ripped off by Goliath. And this efficient infringement problem makes it very difficult for the startup to get out of that box. How do they get out of the box? How does the startup attack Goliath? Gary, why don't we start with you? Sure. So I, I, I think uh, it is a problem. Uh, but there are a lot of ways out there nowadays, uh, particularly because I think uh, it's basically a, a bit of a, a runoff of intellectual property being looked at as an investable asset class, which is something relatively new. Um, you know, uh, Ian talked, uh, uh, um, Oren talked about uh, patents being used defensively, and that the, was the traditional historical IBM model. You loaded up all these patents, you put them on the shelf, somebody came after you, you said, you better go away because I've got this to protect myself. Over the last 15 years or so, intellectual property has been looked at as an investable asset class. You have hedge fund managers, you have private equity, looking to just put money into patents in part because low interest rates, you know, other asset classes are not returning what they were. So as a result, uh, if you've got even the, even the Davids, if you've got a good patent, there are lots of sources out there to help you monetize it. Some of them are very expensive. You've got to give up a lot of the rights that you've got in your patent. You've got to share returns. But some of the options are, first of all, you've got contingency law firms. Um, 
intellectual property litigation is probably the one field where my firm uh, actually does a fair amount of contingency litigation. We'll look at the patent, we'll drill down deep, we'll try to figure out whether it's valuable, we'll try to figure out the market that infringes it, we'll try to figure out what a reasonable royalty is, we'll try to figure out you know, how you monetize it uh, and what the return might be and then kind of negotiate what part of that return we will seek if we prevail and we'll advance uh, you know, our effort to try to do it. You've got uh, uh, private equity, you've got uh, uh, hedge funds who are willing to invest in portfolios. And, and you now have, uh, even as we speak, uh, recently a, a real proliferation of litigation funders. Uh, and again, I think it's just a question of there being a lot of money out there chasing assets that return more than what the, uh, what the debt markets are returning right now. Uh, again, some of them are very expensive money, and by that I mean, you know, if you want to be a David and have somebody fund your effort to monetize it, you may be find yourself that the funder is asking you to give up 70% of the value of your property. So it's, it can be very expensive money, but they're also taking the risk confronting it. So it can be done, uh, but you've got to give up some of your value to do it. You know what's, what's interesting? <clears throat> when I left this space of sort of, um, you know, the big boys and, and a lot of this litigation-based licensing, um, and went to the University of Kentucky where I took over their Office of Technology Commercialization. Most of the licensing that we do uh, and that Columbia Technology Ventures does, does um, is not really actually based in this litigation world. It's early stage technology where most of our licenses are startup companies or you know, you know, middle market companies, but most of it is technology that is coming out of a laboratory, not being infringed uh, yet uh, or at this time. Um, and so you know, um, some people have said to me, well, so the motivations must be totally different. Um, and yes, the, the, the motivations at that negotiation table are different, but these two worlds are actually um, quite uh, related uh, and impact one another. And, I, and I'll say this, um, I'll give you a few examples. We work, you know, we work with startup companies a lot, um, and their reason for needing the, these IP rights now is so that they can get investment, so that they can take that company to the next level. Well, in, the amount of respect or the value that those investors place on the IP has a lot to do with this other world, right? And how they view it, right? Does this company actually need these rights to defend themselves once they get down? Um, and if they, you know, if they have these rights and that helps them get to the IPO level um, without having to, to defend a lot of um, patent lawsuits, um, then they put a place a lot of value on it. Um, and there's empirical studies out now that show the value of having patents at the IPO level. Um, the, the average value of, 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 um, uh, of IPO um, is higher if you have patents. Your, your uh, aftermarket performance after an IPO is much higher uh, if you have patent rights. Um, so there's even our early stage licensing um, in this startup and, and early stage technology worlds um, is quite impacted by what's going on um, in sort of um, in this other world. And, and you see that on Shark Tank all the time. I think yeah. that if the people have a patent, it, that it seems to change the dynamics of the conversation, even if it's just sure. an application. So I think that's, uh, you know, I, I mean, the way, the way you're describing it is you needed to get the investment. I think part of the reason you need to get the investment is the investors looking at it as a hedge. Mm -hmm. Okay, we trust you guys, we like your business, but if everything falls apart, what do we have left? And at least if you have a, a patent or two or three or a little portfolio, then that might be something we can monetize somehow. Yeah, yeah and actually, when, so I'll, I'll, I wanna touch on this from the university side. Um, it seems like the playing field is not the same. It, 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 from, from my perspective, over the last five to 10 years, we have seen um, uh, the, the world split. And you can actually see this in who was lobbying for which side of the patent reform. Um, mostly what we've been talking about here are tech patents. 
by and large. I mean, it's funny because people in the field often will just say patents, but what they really mean, by the way, are by, by and large, when you talk about efficient infringement, is <coughs> software, IT hardware, semiconductors. Um, it's less, in our experience at least, the voluntary licensing market is alive and well in pharma. biopharma, medical devices, advanced materials, things where there's a huge amount of capex that needs to get invested. And then the companies that have invested that capex and waited for really long cycle times can then uh, need to be able to recoup their investment, not only from that technology, but from the ones that failed. Um, so I guess the question that we face now, and I'm guessing Ian faces now down at University of Kentucky, and many of the startups in the tech space face is, um, if you're not in biopharma, uh, medical devices, advanced materials, but rather software, IT, hardware, and semiconductors, um, do you still think that it makes sense for startups to be investing significant amounts of money in filing patents in those fields? And, and from a university perspective, it's sort of a similar, it's a similar story. Well, I think the, it, it makes a ton of sense to at least get a provisional patent application in place, because that's not a significant amount of money. So provisionally, you get that filed, and then you use that to attract funding mm -hmm. to be able to afford to file, to invest in the real patents, and you just build it into your business plan. Because then, then at that point in time, you're making the decision, not just on your behalf, but on behalf of yourself and your investors, and they're going to want the patents, potentially or not. You know, you'll do, uh, you'll do an evaluation as to what's the right amount of investment you can afford and what, what makes sense. I'll give you some examples of, of companies that have tried to go that route all the way to an IPO without having patents, <clears throat> and then what happened to them? Well-known companies, um, Twitter and Facebook and Pure Storage, companies that um, were sort of public about, we don't have many patents. When Facebook announced it was gonna go to an IPO, they had 56 patents. Um, a billion plus dollars later, they have a giant portfolio and they go IPO and they're fine, but they had, you know, that, that billion plus dollars they spent on, on to build their, their portfolio, that was expensive money because, you know, by the time you announce you're gonna go IPO and you're a company like Facebook, you got a big target, right? Um, uh, by lots of companies that have been well before um, in sort of just foundational technology development uh, in R&D. So um, uh, those, are, those are examples, and I think because of some of those examples, um, and it's you know, pure storage and, and Twitter or others where you know, they, they got to a certain point in their business without really having the foundation of patents they, they probably needed to, and sometimes it's not even having patents to protect what you do, it's having patents that read on what your competitor does. Because if you think about when you get to that table, it's just it's a balance of payments negotiation. Um, in, off, in a lot of cases, you know, a, a bigger company sits down and says, okay, um, you know, you're infringing these patents that we have to a tune of you know, $40 million. And if you can whip out a portfolio that says, well, you're infringing these to a tune of $40 million, it's a balance of payments and a cross license. Um, and you know, what you have that reads on someone else, not what you do, that protects what you do. Um, can be just as valuable or more valuable, uh, actually. But the counterfactual to what you're just saying is that had somebody like Facebook or Twitter been more diligent as they were growing, they could have patented organically because they were innovating. Right. Yeah. So, so the assumption That's is right. that the innovations, and, and this is true in Bell Labs as well as it's true in a startup company. When I, when I joined Lucent, when we talked earlier, the group that I supported was making chips that go into cordless phones and mobile phones. The year before I joined them, they filed 10 patents. The year after I joined them, they filed 200 patents. It's not like they all of a sudden started innovating. They were innovating all along. They just weren't taking the time to be diligent about capturing them. And that's, there's, a, there's an evangelism aspect about being a patent attorney that when you're working with the inventive community. So I, th I think what Ian's saying is there's an assumption built into that yeah. that those guys could have patented hundreds of patents if they had the, if they had 
they probably had the investment to be able to do it, but then they have to build a plan and be organized and have a strategy around it. Instead, they were just off making product. There's a great article, and I'll send it to Oren, and you can send it to the class, just on sort of what having patents as a startup or an early stage company, the indicators, um, uh, that, you know, the, the, the signals that it sends to, in, to investors um, and having patents, and it's actually a much longer list than you would think. It doesn't just say we protect what we do, and it doesn't just say we're innovative, but it actually sends like, there's 10 to 15 different strong signals. Yeah. It's a good article, yeah. In, in, in my career and in my experience, you know, look, you're either on the technology side and someone's asking you to contribute to patent application, or you're on the business side where you're trying to evaluate how much a patent actually is going to impact your business. So in my career, I've always been on that side, right? I have a little bit of a technical background, but I've always been on the business side. So in my mind, intellectual property needs to be recognized as a business asset. Okay, so plain and simple, it's an asset. You can choose to use it defensively, you can choose to use it offensively. But more important to that is you need to know what your opportunities and options are for, for leveraging that asset and at what point in your business. So the first time I used intellectual property in my career, I'm sitting in a room of people who are much older than me, who have a lot more money than me, and they're thinking about funding our business. And, and, and this is the medical device company I'm at. And the medical device company is trying to figure out what the value of the business is. And the VCs are saying, well, no one's ever given you a value to the business. And I said, well, I can help. And you know, they asked me to be quiet, and I'd lean forward, and I said, no, I can help. You know, I, and I had this idea, and I said, you know, give me 10,000 bucks and two months. And they said, okay, sh shut up and whatever, you can have your money. So what I did is I went out and I figured out how to get a valuation for the medical device startup. I went and I looked at the biggest competitor, I looked at their trademarks, I figured out they really liked the phrase Accu something. And I took my $10,000 and I wrote an endless amount of trademark applications on top of theirs, which got me about a dozen cease and desist letters. <laughs> And when they called and they said, this is a problem, you can't do this, we're not going to let you do this, I said, yeah, I have a mandate from my board, this is more of a business discussion, you know, we'd like to actually see if you're willing to send people. We ended up getting a $5 per share valuation from this company, that keeps it private. But the, the point was, like, here's a guy at the end of the table, sometimes you've got to look around for creatively how to use the assets, but I was able to actually achieve a very complicated result for 10000 bucks in two months by using trademarks. Hmm. So, you know, you've heard examples here about you know, intellectual property is a corporate asset. If you're choosing to use it defensively, you have to watch out as well. So there's these famous stories about Intel. For a long time, Intel was a multi-billion dollar corporation that did one thing, microprocessors. And its portfolio covered one thing, microprocessors. And you know what that means? From a business leverage position, you were incredibly vulnerable. So in the early to mid-90s, they spread out and started getting telecom patents, et cetera. But I would also tell you the original question was, how does David fight Goliath? And then we talked about partnerships. It is expensive. I would almost argue that, that you can't do it without a partner. The value and the expense of what, if you find yourself actually going to be in a fight over IP, you need to realize that there must be a much larger market opportunity there that in some cases is going to far exceed the venture financing you have to build the business. So we worked with a company about a year and a half ago who was building some mobile security competitive applications. And you look at the company from the outside and you're like, wow, this is really kind of a crap product. You look on the inside and you realize what they've built is an automated infrastructure to actually do what it is they're doing, which scared the crap out of everyone in the industry. So Goliath turns on, on David and says, we're going to sue you for patent infringement. And they're like, wait a second, we don't have any revenue. We're a $7 million, $10 million VC funded company. And it was never about the money. It was about keeping this company out of business. And you know what? They didn't take the help. 
They screwed up in the patent case. They lost. And at the end of all of that, they had to send a letter to all of the customers they had saying, we lost, and we can't service your business. And that's devastating. So you really have to know how IP plays into your business and what opportunities and options you have for it. Actually, it sounds like both from John at your new um, at Hilco and obviously what Sullivan Cromwell does for clients. But this is where we showed earlier that you, know, you, you need help in this field. This is not something for the talented amateur. This is a very, very, very difficult business. And experience matters, panel recognition matters, understanding of the law and where the law is going matter. Um, one last question, then we're going to end it. And if I could ask each of you just to keep the answers sort of on the short side. We have a new administration coming in uh, at the federal level, obviously. Um, there's been a lot of change in the patent landscape. From an IP practitioner, setting aside all other politics, from an IP practitioner's perspective, is there any advice you'd like to give the incoming president, the incoming secretary of commerce, the incoming head of the USPTO, on what you think they could do to bring some rationality back to the system? Just some bullet points. I, you know, I, I, let me start off, and, um, and, and then I'm going to excuse myself and, and apologize because I've got to run. Um, you, you know, I, I think the, uh, the we, we have, over the last 15 years, thrown the baby out with the bathwater, to use a horrible analogy. Um, you know, we have crappy patents that are being issued. We have crappy people that are doing crappy things to monetize these crappy patents. And so what we've done as a result of that is we put in a whole new system of law. We have whole new procedures in the Patent and Trademark Office, which denigrates the value of really brilliant inventions that are coming out of our economy. Intellectual property is critical to the United States economy because it's one of the things that we really do really well. Uh, and so I think what the incoming administration needs to do is fund the Patent and Trademark Office and not make the examiners who issue patents the most overworked exam patent examiners in the world. It requires an effort to weed out the crappy stuff from the good stuff. And we haven't done that very well. And that's going to be critical to protecting intellectual property. The second thing we need to do is to put somebody in the head of the USPTO who actually believes in intellectual property and sees its proper function uh, in our economy. I don't believe that our current uh, leader of the PTO, who got there in a very, very interesting process that uh, maybe some other time uh, we could talk about. After uh, bidding know, pie. Really, <laughs> really believes <laughs> yeah. about intellectual property. Um, and, and then I think we need to get the, the, the dialogue back into balance. And I, I think it, you know, using the, the pulpit of the executive office to do that, to, to try to point out to people uh, you know, that there is some value in intellectual property that I think we've lost. <clears throat> Uh, 101 injunctions, IPRs, those are my three, uh, in the Make Patents Great Again Act. That's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> and uh, what I mean is uh, 101 is the patentable subject matter um, complications that we don't need. Um, injunctions get them back, as we've said before. It's a property right. You should be able to enforce your property and tell somebody to get off your lung. Um, and IPRs is the, the new process from the American Vents Act that allows people to challenge your patents at the patent office and cause them to invalidate patents they already gave you. And it, it just seems like it's, it's way out of control. Yep. There's, there's nothing more important, I think, to an innovation economy than, um, than strong intellectual property rights. And it's not, it doesn't matter just to have patents. It's the ability to enforce them. Um, a, a patent is, is valuable if and to the extent you can enforce it. And if you can't, um, then it's not worth having them. Uh, I gave, that's it. I gave a talk uh, about a year ago. And uh, it was really on the history of intellectual property. It was not in the US. It was just around the world. And something that it, it opened my eyes to is that the, the challenges that we're seeing today aren't new to the patent system. 
Um, but I think it's important to recognize that what we're talking about is something that was contemplated as part of the United States Constitution, right? That, that there should be some reward for your contribution and, and your inventive knowledge that you bring to market. And that reward is the monopoly. So it's part of our infrastructure. You have to recognize that the last 225 years of a patent system has largely led to the United States' ability to be competitive, even in light of moving offshore manufacturing, but you know, still being able to retain that, the knowledge component of what's being done. It has been devastating the haphazard changes and, and court rulings. And I could talk to you endlessly about the new administrative challenges being an issue. On the one hand, you have an office that gives you a patent. And on the other hand, it's the same office that says, oh, wait, you pay me a fee, and I'll look at it again. Um, there's a problem inherent in that that needs to be addressed. And for us, it's a very significant financial problem and a delay problem. Um, but I think you know, going back to a time when there's logic and reason and being willing to sit down at a table, that needs to happen again. So I'm all for more constructive negotiations. But, but I, I think I, I would agree with, with everyone here that I think we are on a path to that. And at some point in the future, we'll look back and say, this isn't that obvious time where that inflection point happened. It's happening now. Yeah. And you can, you can imagine why in a world, we talked about this in class earlier, but in a world where for a drug company, there may be two or three patents that support their monopoly. Uh, the people making phones have thousands of patents. So you could understand why the patent system might be a block for them to be able to efficiently run a business. And that is an important part of the American economy. On the other hand, to Ian's point earlier, um, it's interesting that the ability to enforce your patents, weakening the ability to enforce your patents actually can lead to more litigation, not yes. less. In the Much same more. way that respecting property, real estate property rights may keep people off your property. Yeah. Well, you know, an example that I use, and this is part of my military background, is very few treaties are the result of wars. Right. You know, you fight wars when there's an asymmetry and people understanding the leverage, then somehow that has to be a war. But more often than not, we're, we're signing treaties all the time. And similarly with patent licenses, the real world should be that the vast majority of patent licenses are done without going to litigation. And the litigation should only be when there's some <coughs> mismatch in people's understandings of, of the real value there. But that should be the exception, not the rule. And you know, litigators like Garrett have made lots and lots of money because it's become the rule, and we need to change that. Tell you what, that's, that's really good insight. So let's take this a little bit international just for a second. You've got Brexit, right? So, you know, the United Kingdom votes to remove itself from the European Union. If you look at how the European Union was constructed, it was actually based on a few core nations saying we're going to drive these, drive these policies into what the EU will be. So post-Brexit, the whole notion of a unified patent court being established in, in Germany or in, in or excuse me in Europe broadly, you hear for two year, for a year now about the political suicide that it would be to just vote to leave the EU. How would the e, how would the UK in particular ever vote to actually use the EU construct to be part of a unified patent court? And yet they did. It was earlier this week or late last week, they actually voted and said, we value intellectual property so much that we're willing to commit political suicide by going back into those same EU constructs, at least for the limited purposes of intellectual property rights protection. And I'd like to see something very similar to that be recognized by how important intellectual property means in the global economy. Thank you. If you guys could join me in thanking our panelists and Garrett and Epsentra.